to our conversation on regenerative agriculture. Um, before I ask my guests to introduce themselves um, and share with us what they mean by regenerative agriculture and why it's so important, a couple of things. Um, so firstly, if this is your first visit to Connectal, um, Connectal is a platform for conversation, for circles of intention and for making connections. Um, we host conversations around many different topics and my series is about regenerative systems um, and this is uh, looking at regenerative agriculture. Um, so secondly, a little bit of scene setting, I think, for you in terms of regenerative agriculture. Um, now, um, wherever you are in the world, I think climate change has been in the news recently, um, whether that is through Extinction Rebellion, um, in the UK, David Attenborough's programme on climate change, the facts, or young Greta Thunberg's climate strike um, with the school movement in Europe, which has spread all around the world. Um, so when we think of agriculture in terms of climate change, um, when you look at the statistics, agriculture contributes somewhere between 23 and 26% of all global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And that, that is complicated and occurs in many different ways. Um, ways like deforestation, whether that is to make way for livestock grazing or plant new crops, um, feed for animal feed. There is an area perhaps the size of the EU that goes to producing feed for the industrial animal industry. Um, farming methods, which we're going to talk about a lot um, here today. And then there's processing, there's transport, there's packaging, and there's retail operations. But by far, the three that have the most impact on emissions are deforestation, feed for animal uh, feed industry, and farming methods, which is why we're talking about regenerative agriculture today. So let me ask my guests now to introduce themselves a couple minutes each. Daniela, I'm going to come to you first. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Jenny. I'm Daniela Ibarrajao. I am the CEO of the Saver Institute, an organization that is dedicated to the large-scale regeneration of the grasslands of the world. And we do that via education of the farmer through our network of hubs around the world, uh, partners that work in their own context. And we do it also through influencing the market and policy. Awesome. Thank you, Daniela. Um, Will, can I come to you now? Yes, thank you. I'm Will Harris. My farm in Georgia is called White Oak Pastures. It's been in my family for 154 years and uh, the sixth generation. And what I enjoy most about it is that in the 150-odd years, it's come full cycle from a operation that was based very, focused very heavily on the land, the animals, community, into an industrialized, commoditized, centralized operation. And now over the last 20 years, back to focus on the land, animals, and, commun and community. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Will. Um, Philip, do introduce yourself. 
Hi, I'm Philip Limbury. I'm the Chief Executive of Compassion in World Farming. And uh, I've had the real privilege to uh, travel through a lot of countries and a lot of continents over the last uh, few years to look at the impact of agriculture, uh, particularly industrial agriculture on uh, the, the environment, on the people that are involved in, in the system, but also those that are neighboring it. Uh, to see the impact on consumers and on animals. On the flip side to that, I've uh, had the privilege to see some fantastic farms, some regenerative farms that have been doing wonderful things to, to counter uh, some of those ills. Uh, and one of those wonderful farms that I've had the enormous pleasure to visit uh, several times now, uh, but not nearly enough is White Oak Pastures. And, and Will Harris, it's great to, to be with you. It's great to be with everyone tonight. Thanks, Philip. Rowan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, hello everybody. Uh, and Jenny, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Rowan Atwood. I'm a Senior Director of Global Sustainable Business for Lee and Wrangler uh, Denim Brands. We've been uh, very active in um, promoting a, a sustainable cotton production methodology that utilizes three land stewardship practices that are fairly synonymous with regenerative agriculture. So happy to be here, uh, happy to share a little bit from the fiber side. We do eat cotton, by the way, too. Cotton seed oil is a common thing. So there's a food uh, nexus with the cotton plant, the, the number one material input to our, to our denim product. Thanks, Rowan. And last but not least, Charles. Hi, uh, my name is Charles O'Malley from the United Nations Development Program. Uh, I work within uh, a program called the Green Commodities Program. Uh, the key thing we do is work with national governments to help create the enabling conditions for sustainable agricultural production. Uh, but we are primarily focused on major commodities. Uh, so we're working with the government of Indonesia on their national strategy for sustainable palm oil, working in uh, Liberia and Papua New Guinea on palm oil. We're working with the government of Paraguay on sustainable beef and soy. Uh, we are working, uh, we work in West Africa on uh, cocoa, uh, working with the government of Peru on, uh, on coffee. Uh, and there's a few other projects in the pipeline. Um, I'm, I'm confess, I I'm, feel like I'm coming from a place of ignorance uh, in this sort of group uh, of giants from the, uh, from the space. Um, but I think that's um, probably sometimes a useful place to come from as well. Absolutely. And okay, so, so let's kind of dive in to the subject. Um, so what are the challenges of changing what is by and large an industrial agricultural system to a regenerative system? Um, how can it be done and what are the barriers to making that happen? Daniela, would you like to begin? Thank you, Jenny. <clears throat> Just for context, the Savory Institute and the work we do with our partners, Will is one of our big partners in the US, is tied to grasslands management and livestock mainly. So I'm going to focus on that. Um, what we have found, um, if you look at regenerative agriculture as something that happens at the farm level, which it starts there, right? 
one of the biggest challenges we have is um, allowing enough uh, incentive and support for the shift of practices to happen. And that's what we designed to do through our hub strategy and the partners we have around the world is to have leaders and, and supporters and mentors and solutionaries and entrepreneurs that understand deeply the social, economic, political, ecological context in which they are operating. No one better than Will to support the farms in Georgia to move in the right direction. So there's a lot of incubation, there's a lot of support, there's a shift that needs to happen in our habits. And, and that is one of the biggest things we're trying to address. But even when we have equipped a farmer, a rancher, a pastoralist in the different contexts to do things better with an immediate return on their investment in terms of productivity, resilience, increased profitability, and all the good things that come with it. Still, when the product comes out of the gate, it encounters the conventional system. And, and sometimes they cannot figure out, these farmers cannot figure out a way in which at the end, uh, the market is rewarding all that work uh, that is being done. It goes into the commodity market, it goes undifferentiated. So there's something about that distribution, processing distribution black hole that needs to be addressed. And then there's the understanding and reconnection that the consumers and the brands need to have, and it's happening. Uh, we have the land market program that is, trying to, that is facilitating this. And, and to, to send the signals that this is the kind of food that we want to eat, that food that in the process of healing ourselves is healing the land, is doing good things for the local communities. So I think it's multi-challenge and I think there's a lot of groups and organizations and specific um, skill sets and, and gifts that we bring to the table to, to tackle simultaneously all the aspects that need to be lifted to enable a more regenerative model to to succeed and, and ensue. That's really, you know, I mean, it is very complex. So, Will, if you can kind of cast your mind back um, at, as a representative of the farming community, what, <clears throat> you know, what was it that prompted you to look at this in the first place? And, you know, what are the triggers that interest farmers to start to make that kind of a shift? Well, I was a uh, very uh, inventional, uh, conventional industrial farmer, cattleman primarily, and a uh, uh, farm that way successfully for 20 years. And was uh, we, made, we, we were very comfortable financially, but uh, the, the longer I did it, the more uh, tired I came of the industrial the excesses of that way of farming. So we made the decision to transition back to the ways of my grandfather and great-grandfather. And in doing and it was, and we, were, we were successful in the practice of doing that. The production came fairly easily, but we found ourselves putting value into the product that we couldn't extract back from the market. So that required us to add processing, which was very capital intensive. We built uh, processing plants, slaughter plants for red meat and poultry. And that uh, uh, allowed us to recoup the added value we were putting into the product 
but faced with the difficulty of moving a lot of products. So I, we discuss here the three legs on the stool. There's production in the fields and pastures, there's processing to, to make it marketable, and then there's the actual uh, process of marketing it. And the most difficult part is bringing them all up together. You, you can't, it's not the best two out of three. They've got to all come up at the same uh, velocity. So, so, um, so Charles, from your point of view, when you're working with the Green Commodities Programme, are the challenges that you're seeing in different countries around the world similar? Are we talking about um, finance, essentially investment? Are we talking about uh, government intervention to make the regenerative commodities, um, agriculture and products more attractive to the consumer? You know, what are, what are the trigger points that need to change? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we think a lot about the enabling environment. Um, you know, we're working on major global commodities which uh, have, uh, in the case of the five I named, they've all been major drivers of deforestation. Uh, and I think if you go back to the 90s, uh, from actors within the markets that wanted to make an impact, there was a certain amount of skepticism or cynicism that governments were really going to be uh, sort of active partners in reducing deforestation. Uh, obviously, for a lot of the, a lot of the company, a lot of the countries where deforestation has been taking place, it's been often seen in a positive light because it's about agricultural expansion, addressing poverty. Uh, you know, it's it's it can be popular with the voters. Uh, you're seeing economic development um, and and, and uh, sort of greater wealth coming to communities. Um, so I think there was an attempt over the past you know 20 plus years for the markets to kind of work around in the absence of efficient uh, and effective governance, uh, you know, specifically that it was felt that governments could not be, uh, uh, were not good partners in uh, basically um, putting a stop to agricultural expansion, uh, particularly into, into forests. Uh, and I think that experiment has, has failed uh, and even in, in um, products like palm oil that have uh, the highest market penetration of, of uh, sustainable palm oil uh, compared to other voluntary market standards, you know, you're still looking at only 20% of the global market of palm oil that is certified. So 80% is being sold off to markets that, that don't, uh, don't ask or don't care. So now I think we're getting to a place where, you know, the leading uh, brands where a lot of the NGO pressure is on, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Nestle, Mars, Mondelez, Walmart, etc., McDonald's, uh, you know, they're, they're serious about trying to stop these, uh, these critical issues such as deforestation, but they now realize they can't do it in the absence of effective government. And so increasingly they are trying to figure out, well, how do they partner with government and how to do that well? I mean, that's a key thing that we do. Uh, and it's, I would say, quite depressing, uh, the level of, or the lack of sophistication 
that's going on in that space. You know, I, I would say it feels quite new. This, I mean, I think it is an increasingly serious attempt for markets to collaborate with governments uh, to address, you know, these issues. Um, but I still think there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, forces pushing in the other direction as well. Um, so, you know, from our point of view, we see it very much being about building partnerships with government, um, creating the enabling environment, and how can, how can markets help create the enabling conditions for politicians? You know, for, for politicians uh, in a lot of these countries, it's not necessarily popular to say that we are halting agricultural expansion, we're putting a stop to license, uh, you know, new licenses on, on land. Uh, and so it needs to be a positive message that's not just about stopping environmental destruction. It needs to also have a framing around, um, you know, the, the positives for the, for the local population, which obviously there are massive environmental positives, but there need to be social and economic positives as well. And would you say that that is similarly reflected in somewhere that we would call an advanced nation? And I kind of slightly use that term lightly, um, like in the United States, are the challenges similar or are they different? I'll defer to uh, Will or Daniela on that one. Daniela. Uh, or or Rowan for that matter. Daniela? So I yeah, thank you, Will. And I'll let you address the US and I will address as you were speaking, Charles, I was thinking of your why Argentina, Brazil, I'm Argentinian. I've seen what happened to the Pampas of Argentina. I've been involved for many years in the issues of deforestation in Brazil. And now what I'm seeing happening in Uruguay, there has always been this, um, this punitive approach to regenerative agriculture, you know, stop doing that, or, you know, there's a fee, there's a punishment, you cannot move. People are moving into new areas because their land base has degraded to the point that it cannot sustain uh, an economic return anymore. So they are being pushed to, to do that. And then, you know, NGOs or governments come with packages that are not really contextually relevant and actually, um, actually even make the, the problem even worse. And that has been seen in Brazil. Now what we're seeing since 2015 and the four per thousand and, and the big push on, on the role, the, the, the big awareness of the role of regenerative agriculture to help with the mitigation of climate change and with brands saying, we want to be part of that story as well because it's good for them you know, in terms of their sourcing approaches. We're seeing um, countries begin to understand that if we come with the uh, um, promise of regenerative agriculture as a way in which we can stay put and we can improve what we have and we can double and triple the way, and again, I'm talking for the grasslands here, in which we produce more, be more resilient, uh, produce a better, more nutritious product and differentiate it in the marketplace, it, it, it's very empowering. And, uh, and it accomplishes all those multiple uh, challenges that were faced before and couldn't be addressed. And even in Uruguay, you are seeing now this pride in the regenerative country brand that they, they had a natural Uruguay, now they are Uruguay Natural, now they are talking about Uruguay Regenerativo. 
in a way in which the the whole industry is becoming more aware this is a way to position ourselves ahead of the game with other um, countries and in the in the beef industry and position ourselves as, as a country that is contributing to climate change that is providing a better quality beef and and how do we um, use that as policy and governments are are starting to listen because there's a, a value prop for all the stakeholders so I think as we change the narrative around regenerative agriculture from one that is about not doing about avoiding and one about actually regenerating the land base and creating conditions of abundance, um, the, the, the conversation will, will shift as well. Yeah, I just wanna, um, I, I just wanna reinforce that point. Um, you know, I, I think we're very, very guilty of it. A lot of the programs we run in countries are perceived as being very negative. Uh, you know, we basically we come into countries and and effectively are seen to sort of dictate all the things that you can no longer do. Um, and, and you know, I've heard a lot of people in the, in uh, you know in the private sector in particular say, "Yeah, but what's your positive vision?" You know, you're never you're never going to sell, uh, uh, particularly from a political point of view, a negative vision. You've got to sell a positive one. And that's why I think we've been really missing a trick in that there's been a big a focus and a big narrative on stopping deforestation. I think we need to flip it into a positive narrative about what are we what are we trying to do? You know, in terms of uh, at one level increasing the prof profitability of farms. You know that that's a message that's far more likely to uh, resonate with farmers uh, than talking about the land that they can no longer use. I'm guessing that resonated with you, Will, because I'm seeing your hand up there. It did. It particularly did, uh, especially because uh, up until now, so much of what we are, uh, the education we put before the public is what we should not do. It's been very uh, process-driven. Uh, we're now at the point that we can have outcome verifications as part of savory. Outcome verification is a very important part of what the hub does. And on our farm, uh, tomorrow, we'll be releasing a life cycle analysis that shows that uh, we actually sequester three and a half pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent for every pound of beef we produce. So it, it, it moves regenerative from a claim to an actual verified outcome. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. And I think that's what it will take to get uh, the large numbers of consumers on board. Um, I, I just want to bring in Philip here when we were talking about the role of governments and Charles obviously you work within UNDP and I know Philip you were at the UN Environment Conference in Nairobi recently um, and, and made a call for, um, for, for a new agreement to be looked at similar to the, the kind of IPC process for climate change and as Will was talking about you know having proof and measurement um, and statistics I wonder what kind of feedback you got in Nairobi from the UN Environment Programme and what kind of support there is there? 
Well, it was early days, but it was very encouraging early days, Jenny. Uh, yes, uh, Compassionate World Farming was was calling for, is calling for a global agreement to replace industrial agriculture, factory farming, uh, with regenerative uh, uh, food production and uh, and balanced diets. Uh, and I think coming back to your your initial question what what is it what is the real challenge in moving to regenerative agriculture and there there are of course lots of technical uh, challenges on the ground and there's a lot of impetus for those that believe in regenerative agriculture but i think um if we're going to get this into the mainstream then we've got to answer the question why why is regenerative agriculture so important? Because I believe that big change starts with recognition, recognition of the problem. And what is the problem? Well, the problem is that we're running out of time to shift uh, a 60, 70 year old uh, oil tanker uh, to a different course. Uh, you know, the, the IPC the IPCC tells us that we've got 12 years to solve climate change. We know that pollinators like bees, essential for the very existence of a third of all our food, are uh, in steep decline. We know that antibiotics, half of which across the world are fed to farm animals to ward off disease in factory farms, um, could soon stop working. Uh, we know that wild fish stocks could be exhausted within 30 years. And that if the United Nations predictions are correct, we could have just 60 years left, 60 harvests left in the world's soils. And then what? Well, no soils, no food. So clearly, the way that we're producing food now in a system which is increasingly dominated by industrial agriculture, a system which is taking away from the credit bank of nature uh, and bringing the natural ecosystem to its knees, that is not something which can continue into the future. And when we talk about when is that likely, when are those chickens likely to come home to roost? When is our time going to be up? Well, we've got probably 20 or 30 years. If you take the outside, what the United Nations said about soil, 60 years. Well, my mother passed away when she was 64. Uh, she died of breast cancer. And 64 is no age um, to, to pass away these days. But what that UN prediction about soils means is that a boy or girl born today, he or she will not even be the same age as my mother uh, when when they potentially witness the death of our food system. So I think one of the big challenges is getting across the, the recognition that for our way of life as a global society to stay anything like the same, everything has to change. As Greta Thunberg puts it, the rules have to change things have to change and it has to start today and that to me is the big enabler of regenerative agriculture because regenerative agriculture has a wonderful story to tell it's that what if you know what if we had uh, farming systems that started to bring nature back that started to bring the soils back that gave us much better more nutritionally balanced food that didn't need all these chemical pesticides and fertilizers that by the way are taking money out of the pockets of of the farming community
uh, as well as debasing the legacy that we hand over for our children. Regenerative agriculture offers a future. It offers something vibrant. It offers something more. Industrial agriculture is about short-term profit for today uh, and destroying the future. And that has only, in my view, about another three decades to run. Uh, I, and I think, you know, I think we're all agreeing here um, that, that there's something important in the narrative and the story. And you've really just highlighted that um, for, for me, Philip. And I think one of the things that we've seen the climate change movement suddenly analogy and um, Rowan I'd like to ask you to step in here as a sort of brand representative um, you know and I know you're talk, going to speak to us from a point of view of, uh, of cotton industry that you're heavily involved in through VF Corporation but um, you know what are the challenges for you as a brand of integrating regenerative agriculture in your supply chain? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's not an easy one to answer. I mean, I think that uh, supply chains often are, are nameless and faceless in the way that they operate. A commodities market doesn't lend itself well to, um, to traceability and to being able to, to specify that I want these practices to happen on farm, these agricultural practices. This is my this is my my criteria, and let's get it up and work it through the supply chain. Um, there's layers of of difficulty there. One just being that, what happens when you have a truly traceable supply chain? You also have accountability. You have uh, actors that uh, if things don't work out well, um, you know not just the grower, but the brokers and the people who trade it to the individuals who ginned that cotton. Cause every time you, you handle that, that commodity, it, it d diminishes its fiber performance. So, you know, I, I think some of those challenges that exist, this idea that, um, being able to specify and ask for those three practices. We, we've done that recently uh, with a very small program we launched last week called the Rooted Collection, uh, where we were highlighting five different growers in five different U.S. states that have all used three different key land stewardship practices. The use of cover crops, non-cash crop in the off-season, uh, use of complex rotation, uh, rotating three different crops in the same field over five years, and the use of conservation tillage or no tillage. But in order to do that, in order to be able to, to to tell a meaningful story and to be able to get to growers that were doing these practices, we had to, to reinvent the model. We had to start over. We had to work outside of the traditional supply chain process because a lot of different frameworks and, and a lot of times when we get uh, sort of a management framework involved, the, the value is obscured or becomes obscured unnecessarily or, or unintentionally. Um, you know, whether we're we're, we're using a, an average for the industry or whether we're using a, a, a sort of a virtual mass balance approach, whatever those different approaches are have been um, 
designed to create sort of the, the commoditization of sustainable fiber, they don't lend itself well to knowing true and accurate and, and traceable that this is actually the practices that we want to see uh, on farm and that come up and through into our products. So um, there's a lot of challenge. I think, I think blockchain is a little bit of a red herring because if we can't do it on paper, we can't do it commercially to begin with, then there's no way that technology is going to solve that problem for us. Um, now, I can see how it would have value with a commodities broker and the opportunity to transfer information um, you know, with, with all that uh, autonomy. Me, but I think that um, to some degree, the systems that we have today don't always lend itself well to ensuring that we're seeing these best practices up in the products that we want. Um, in, it, which kind of nicely brings us to the, the, the integration of, of technology into this massive process of change. And um, I met a, a, an organization talking about blockchain um, last year called Regen Network, who are, I believe, uh, trying to use blockchain to reward farmers for regenerating their land and using satellite technology to track the improvement of their land so that they, sh they should be financially um, rewarded for the improvements that they make to their land. And um, only today I saw another article about uh, the, the development of um, uh, 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 synthetic meat um, going to make the actual live livestock beef industry redundant in the future. So I'm kind of interested to hear from all of you um, what impact you think technology is going to have on the speed of change from industrial to regenerative systems. Um, you know, what, what has been your experience, for example, Will, in transferring your farm did you did tech was did technology play a part uh, technology is certainly a, a, a big part of what we do it's a big part of what we spend money on uh, we have a, uh, a usda inspected red meat plant and a usda inspected poultry plant here on the farm they're powered by solar voltaic power uh, you know, the, uh, we compost uh, uh, all the waste material. Uh, it's full, we a lot of money spent on software for full traceability of our product all the way out to the consumer. Uh, technology is certainly a great aid, has been a great aid in helping us transform this farm. But trans, uh, technology in itself is not the answer. Uh, it's, uh, it's part of what brought us to where we are and uh, so I, I, I guess I would call not for more use of technology, but for smarter use of technology. Technology is what gave we puny humans the power to break all the cycles that generated the abundance in the first place. The, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the carbon cycle, the microbial cycle, dot, dot, dot. So uh, uh, certainly technology is important. Certainly we are pro-technology, but we are uh, focused on, uh, you know, the, the uh, you mentioned, uh, I, I, was, I wasn't going to address it, but you mentioned the uh, replacing meat through technology. And I have, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a livestock producer, but I have full respect for the vegan or vegetarian decision. That's a lifestyle choice that everyone has the right to make, certainly. 
And when someone tells me they made that choice because of uh, uh, animal welfare concerns, I respect that. Uh, because of health concerns, many, many other different concerns, they just don't like it. I, I respect that. But when I'm told that it's because of the impact on the planet, uh, I question that. I don't just question it, I object to it. You know, the, the cycles that I just mentioned, animals, uh, the grazing animals is an essential part of it. It's not part of the problem, it's part of the, of the benefit of the correction of the cure, but it's gotta be technology applied to, to, to rebuild the cycles, not technology applied to break the cycles. So, you know, when, when I'm thinking about this whole process of shifting a massive global system to a different global system, um, you know, a, a lot of the times I hear that regenerative agriculture is for smallholders. It is not going to have an impact on the big uh, grain belts, the big wheat belts, the rice production, the um, uh, corn production, uh, that that is always going to have to be industrially done. So I'm kind of interested to hear your perspectives from anybody on whether that's a myth, whether that's accurate and how you know you've talked there will about the importance of having animals as part of the regenerative uh, equation so are we when we're imagining that future are we seeing a shift in away from massive monocultures to a, a, a farmed landscape that is much more integrated in the future uh, whether that be um, uh, palm integrated with cocoa, integrated with biodiversity protection, or whether that's wheat integrated with livestock, integrated with um, vegetable production. You know, how is this going to happen? Well, the, the, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, monocultures fly in the face of nature. Nature abhors a monoculture. A monoculture can only exist through the tools of technology that allow the, the monoculture to stand. You, when, when you embrace a monoculture, you give up the symbiosis that, that gives the abundance that is the only wealth that we have on this earth. So uh, uh, I think that it's essential that we, we decouple, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the, the great grain monocultures you know, so much of that goes into the uh, ruminant feeding business that is part of the, the problem. So I think that uh, for uh, true uh, regenerative farm practices to, to occur, it's, it's going to be gradual. It's not going to be all at one time. I know we talked about the amount of time we've got. But it took us about arguably 75 years to get where we are. And to say that we're going to go to all regenerative agriculture would be to say that we're going to get all consumers to give up the uh, obscenely cheap, wastefully abundant food that industrial farming has given us. And that's simply not, it's not the case. You know, what is happening is what should happen. And that is you know, some 
uh, innovative producers are have figured out are figuring out the regenerative production system for the sophisticated consumers that appreciate the, the benefits of it to, to the earth and to their health and to the society. And is that the consumer will decide whether it grows or not. Uh, I don't think that uh, uh, prolifer proliferation of regenerative farming will be in the hands of regulators or administrators. It'll be in the hands of the consumer. And to be honest, I just don't have that much confidence in consumers. Uh, I, I hope I'm wrong. Well, I think, uh, Will, you make a really good point in terms of not having confidence in the consumer, because generally speaking, the, comp the consumer doesn't have the information at his or her fingertips to make a decision, uh, you know, whether they want to buy welfare-friendly food, whether they want to buy environmentally-friendly food. Yes, they can look for uh, organic or, or some of these other audited labels, but the industrial alternative is labeled as fresh or farm fresh or country fresh. When you know, we know, for example, in, in, in Europe, that uh, a third of consumers can be fooled into thinking that just that word fresh means free range. So consumers are not, equ are not equipped uh, to, 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 to really make the change that is needed. Uh, you said that, uh, you rightly said that it took us 70 years to get to where we are now. We've got uh, a third to, to half that time to, to turn it around. So I think that's why it really, the imperative is on leadership. Uh, the leadership is going to be required at political level and, at, and, and with businesses uh, to make big, bold decisions, both uh, nationally and regionally, but also internationally. So that is why I come back to the role of the United Nations uh, in brokering a global agreement to move away from the industrial monocultures, which uh, which are actually undermining our ability to produce food for the future uh, and to go to a regenerative system that is going to be absolutely necessary for the future of humanity. So I think it's very much um, you, coming back to the original, very original question, Jenny, that you put, you know, what are the challenges? How are we going to get there? I would say it needs to be driven by a recognition that the changes is imperative, that that recognition needs to be followed through by, uh, by policy, a concerted policy, policy change by governments, uh, by financial incentives, um, by education and support. It's that package which got us here in the first place. It's that package that threw us behind the wasteful and inefficient form of farming, which is industrial agriculture, uh, which, feeds, um, which feeds 4 billion people's worth of food every year to industrially reared animals in a highly wasteful system. Uh, so we're going to need that same policy imperative uh, by governments, um, regional, national, international, and businesses. Uh, if we are going to change things around, we're the last generation that uh, can hand over a, a planet worth having to our ch to our children. That is a policy decision. What are we going to choose? Future generations, their uh, future well-being uh, relies on the policy decisions that our generation makes in the next 10 to 20 years. I would like to comment on what you're saying, Philip, and what you said before. The fact that we have those 30 to 60 years doesn't mean that we will be okay for 60 years and then 
fall, right? So we're already seeing more and more challenges into even being able to have outcomes uh, when you have proper practices and regenerative practices because of the weather extremes and the severity of weather patterns. And, and the fact that even if there's a policy tomorrow that says we're going to change everything, the transition to change will take another 10, 20 years. So this is a journey. And the journeys are very different in different regions. So in the beef sector, it's very different to be working in Kenya with the Maasai, in Patagonia with the sheep producers, uh, wool producers, or in the United States with the beef producers. Every context is very unique. And the policy and investment needs to shift the system at that local level, which I believe the scale up of this regenerative movement will happen as a sum of many local or regional efforts designed to meet that contextual um, situation, reality. Um, so it, 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 will, it will require tremendous amount of that, of leadership and ways in which the money that is out there, because there is money at the government, UN level funds, green funds, climate funds, but they can never find the projects because the projects are so small and atomized. So even the deployment of capital is somehow restricted by the current system of centralization and, and, and you know, big you know, um, efficiencies and volumes and that sort of thing. So we need to become really creative and skillful at designing ways in which investment can happen to support the shifts that need to happen for farmers to do what they need to do to create the outcomes we need to create in the situation in which climate is already hitting really hard. So we are going to be having more and more challenging situations. We need to act quickly, but there are a lot of big systems. I like to look, you know, we always use the Titanic, you know, thing, um, analogy. So the Titanic will move slowly. There's the chance of having speedboats around but still those speed boats need to be working within the current system and the system is taking sort of you know longer to shift so what are and this maybe is a question to charles and and, and philip and um and even roy in terms of the role of brands to do really well and for us it's a matter of you know let's let's not dictate practices let's support and enable the farmer to do what they need to do let's equip them to do and let's measure outcomes and then let's differentiate those trending in the right direction taking a step toward healing the system let's differentiate them so then the incentives can be aligned but then there's the macro level of policies and, and big funds that can support that movement. How do we make sure we design to meet each other? And that is one of the challenges we find. We are working in 50 regions, hubs in 50 regions, aggregating producers and regenerative supply with data backing it up, uh, with technology to gather that data. So we're all the pieces are in place and still we don't have that momentum that we need in terms of really seeing the incentives, both financial and political policy-wise, aligning to accelerate that. 
Yeah, I could just jump in from a U.S. farmer perspective, I, and I love this question because I think I think you're also asking how can we get to scale quickly. And I, you know, I, I'll take a little bit of a different point of view, Jenny. It's just that I'm inspired by a lot of the way that technology has been able to get us closer to a regenerative outcome. I mean, when we think about how technology, on-farm technology, has evolved in, in in the mechanized row crop system, you know, it was 15 years ago that auto steer GPS was invented, and that's just a simple thing like lane positioning on the highway right but for tractors you know on the highway that's that's your life it's dangerous if you're if you're next to a car that's drifting into your lane but in a tractor that saves on 16 percent greenhouse gas emissions by auto steer gps we now have variable rate um, spraying units that can be very precise with where they they um, they spray on on individual um, plants. I think even just irrigation systems, when the way that the droplet comes out of the nozzle with a uh, a, a way of, of curving and creating a, a droplet of liquid that um, is more effective on field. Um, just the wide variety of water efficiency technologies, from you know what was originally flood irrigation to now modified pivot systems to drip tape to subsurface trip that reaches 96% efficiency like there are all so many different examples of this um, agricultural dot-com explosion is going on right now in ways where growers can get to scale more quickly and I think in the US market with US cotton growers and we want our, our cotton growers to be growing complex sorghum soy peanuts when you have the soils for it wheat and a wide variety of other things that complex rotation is is uh, is in some ways in an essence to try and get away from that continuous monoculture and create that better diversity in soil over time. And in some cases, we've seen recently, I was in South Dakota speaking at the, the FFA, the Future Farmers of America Convention, and I, I was able to, to learn there that they actually have a new app that they've created where they're connecting um, grazing animals with cover crops and, and cover crops that are being produced on, on row crop land. So if you have winter wheat or if you have some sort of cover crop on your land and you're gonna have to terminate that in the spring anyways, why not um, crowd share your, your cattle to come over and, and lend themselves to grazing on this pasture. So through the connectivity of these, what appear to sometimes be adjacent but related industries of um, you know cattle ranching and row crop production in South Dakota, a simple app was is being used to bring people together. So I think there's no limit to what the technology can sort of do and, and all that it will inspire in terms of helping us reach our, our sort of regenerative uh, future goals. Charles, did you want to come in there quickly? Uh, well, I was just gonna say, uh, I guess in my field of work, the area I feel most positive about is probably the stuff that's happening at the landscape level. Uh, you know, we, we've been working for a few years on, uh, you know, single, single crop commodity uh, policies at the national level. You know, fundamentally, you can, that's a sort of, you've got an unsustainable way of thinking embedded in your, in your very approach. Um, uh, because you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, you know, create sustainable supply chains of, of monoculture uh, crops um, without looking at, at any of the rest of the context. So I think the work now that's happening uh, increasingly at the landscape level is encouraging. Uh, and this is where some of the big global funding is now uh, starting to flow. So the next round of funding from the global environment facility uh, of about 100 million is going into uh, landscape level programs. And I think uh, the initial round is 11 or 12 different landscapes globally. And then it's gonna be going into a, into a whole host more over the next one or two years. 
uh, and those are, although they do have a focus um, still on the major commodities that are driving, you know, key issues, particularly deforestation, but others as well. Uh, there is a an attempt, at least, to be a little bit a bit more holistic in the thinking, uh, looking across, uh, you know, other crops, food crops, and also taking a more holistic approach to thinking about uh, the extent to which the agricultural economy is embedded within a wider economic environment, the whole social dynamics, uh, and it is very much a partnership between government, civil society, and, and, and businesses. So certainly the, the sort of the leading corporates uh, in the space, uh, you know, which tend to be the large brands that have been working on this for a long time, um, as well as, of course, the large producers on the ground, uh, I think are uh, looking at, at this as really the next, uh, as the next chapter in terms of sustainable sourcing. Uh, but it's still early days. So you know, I think what's it going to take to scale? Uh, it's going to take um, some of these things to really work out well. Um, and, you know, there are, there are quite a number of challenges to that. But if we can get some, some uh, initiatives at the level of the landscape or the bioregion uh, to uh, show some impressive results on, on you know, m a multiplicity of different indicators, including, you know, farmer yields, profitability, uh, you know, social benefit to the community, uh, you know, getting politicians elected, helping companies uh, source sustainably and be able to evidence it, um, you know, being a test bed for interesting new technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Then I think momentum will begin to go uh, in that direction, uh, but, it's, but it's early days. Um, uh, I mean, otherwise, otherwise, I mean, I, you know, I, I think I think the key thing that is going to shift this is is just, uh, uh, you know, some some catastrophic events. Basically, uh, I think we're going to see an increasing number of catastrophic events uh, that will uh, have uh, generate a total step change in, in popular opinion. So I, I think the Extinction Rebellion uh, is incredibly positive in, in the UK and a few other countries. But any country that is hit by, you know, a, a, a massive disaster uh, probably has good, will have decent conditions for a popular movement uh, for, for fundamental transformational change at scale and rapidly. Thank you, Charles. I mean, we're, we're coming towards the top of the hour and normally at this point in time, we um, have a look and see if there is anybody in the audience who'd like to come on with a question. And I can actually see um, a couple in the chat. Um, so because the subject of bioregionalism um, has come up and I hope to run another webinar later on in the year on the whole subject of bioregional approach to agriculture. Um, but I thought I'd just put this question in here, um, uh, which I think is from Andy Middleton, um, who's in Wales. And Wales is an area in the UK that is, um, you know, really deeply looking at regenerative agricultural strategies and bioregional strategies along with Scotland. Um, it won't say much about the rest of England, but um, and Andy's question is, what thoughts do panelists have on ways that we can rapidly increase the ecosystem, carbon and nature literacy of what's happening so that people are capable of joining the dots between policy and outcome, particularly for civil servants and elected representatives? And I don't know if anybody's got um, a kind of immediate thought on that in about two minutes before we start to wrap up here. 
I would say get them out to, to Will Harris's farm. That would be, for me, one of the quickest ways for light bulb moments to happen in the right places. Will Harris's farm. I will say this. Certainly invited. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, I will echo that sentiment. We need to reconnect. We have become so disconnected as policymakers, as citizens, or as food buyers. Um, the impact and the source of our choices. So that need for understanding comes from a sense of um, love, and you cannot love something you don't know. So I think it has. It, we, we have to promote ways in which people can get on the land, learn from the farmers and the ranchers, and um, begin moving the system. Public opinion will inform policy and, and market trends. I think it's a great so question. I'd love, I'd love to talk to Andy about it because I'm sure he's got ideas, uh, knowing Andy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've just been struck having worked at the UN for the last couple of years, how technocratic a lot of our work is. Uh, and I think real change comes from mindset shift. Uh, so I think this question of how do you shift mindsets amongst, uh, you know, the people that, that, that uh, have power and make decisions is fundamental. Yeah, and I would add democratize the data. You know, I, I, I love the opportunity to, to see the changes that are possible, whether it's total organic content or CO2 respiration rates of soil. Like, how do we make that more visible so we can um, verify those outcomes and that so people can decide that, that, hey, this is really working? Is there a way to make the connectivity between that performance data and, and um, very real time? and accessible by consumers and brands both that you know that there's no better test to um you know demonstrating the the value of these practices and and putting it into market totally and it's okay. a way for the citizen to then contribute to that shift right to feel that they are doing something to truly move the needle because otherwise there's a lot of room for greenwashing as well so i'm gonna have to start to wrap us up now because I think this is a topic that we could speak on for many hours because we're all very passionate about it in our different ways but um, I think what I've heard is a story unsurprisingly of complexity here and time um, you know and we've talked about the need for a change in attitude from governments we've talked about UN involvement we've talked about fiscal incentives in systems. We've talked about the importance of a better narrative and better stories. Um, we've talked about consumer engagement and reconnecting people with nature. We've talked about democratizing data and technology. Um, and you know, I think one of the things that Charles said there, which is hugely important, um, you know, a mindset shift that we, you know, people believe this is the only way to produce food for 7 billion people and or 9 to 10 billion people. So I'd just like to ask you all one last question, if you can manage to answer in a sort of minute or so each. If there was, you know, one thing, what's the single most important thing that you think needs to change to take, to enable regenerative agriculture to you know to grow exponentially as part of the agricultural system daniela as you're on i'll start with wow 
you're trying you're <laughs> okay <clears throat> one thing um i would say intentionality um in the part of of all of us to be very intentional in the design uh to be driven by the underlying health of uh, our farms and our local communities uh, and not so focused on the extractive outcome-based approaches uh, so the intentionality to shift all these intervening systems uh, so so we can move towards re-nurturing re um, rebuilding the ecological social wealth that has been eroded in the past 70 years well let me come to you uh, I would say that uh, any change will be done at the uh, because the consumer demands it. And in the words of Wendell Berry, or the sentiment of Wendell Berry, uh, consumer education uh, triggering consumer demand, empowering farmers to make the changes is, is I think, the only answer. Philip. I think there needs to be a policy mindset change. I think that uh, policy makers need to recognize the urgency of the planetary crisis that we face. Uh, and uh, then to get busy in terms of fashioning that global agreement to replace the most damaging and inefficient form of agriculture on the planet, industrial agriculture, with a form of food production which is genuinely future fit. Uh, and that, uh, to, from, to my mind, means a form of food production which puts back uh, into the natural asset bank, and that's regenerative. Ryan? Yeah, I think it would be just never be too content with where we've arrived in the present moment. I think that when you're talking about the technology and the evolution, it really sparked for me that just how much is revealed every year with what more is possible. You know, the newest scientific study says that the translocation of carbon from the top six to eight inches can actually affect much further down the, the layers and levels of soil than originally anticipated. And that is exciting news. That's extremely exciting news. And it, it only pushes us further in what's possible on this, on this, on this potential of a regenerative approach. So I think if there's one sort of key takeaway, it's, it's a journey, it's a commitment, it's, it's an outlook and it's a mindset, but it's never a destination that the more that we continuously focus on, on how we can evolve in the future, the stronger we'll be for it. And Charles, finally. Um, I think inspired by the last bit of the conversation, I'd probably, uh, if, I, if I was given unlimited budget, I'd go round to key countries and think, who, who are the most influential decision makers, policy makers, ministers, CEOs, etc., and how do we create the conditions for them to have some sort of mindset shift? And probably what I would do is run a whole series of learning journeys uh, probably take out small cohorts of, of leaders, decision makers, give them expire, inspiring experiences uh, and inspire them that some other way is possible. So an hour has flown by, as it always does in these conversations. Um, oh, what's that I can hear? Odd. Um, I, let me thank all of my guests today, uh, Daniela, Roan, Will, 
Philip and Charles, thank you very much to com for coming to this conversation and thanks to the audience for being with us. Um, and I hope that we'll be back with another conversation on regenerative agriculture because it's such a big topic in the not too distant future. Thank you all.